With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am talking to you right now from Florida, and then I leave in the wee hours for the Caribbean, and uh, so we're racking up some podcasts here. And so I don't know when this will air, but you know, in the next week or so. So we were and in that spirit. We decided to lean into our our comparative advantage and do some hardcore rank eggheadery. And uh, in that great spirit, uh, my colleague from the American Enterprise Institution, American American Enterprise Institute, Kevin Kosar, has uh, joined me. Uh, Kevin studies Congress, the administrative state, and why we can't have nice things at AEI. And he also wrote the intro to um, a new book or a reissue of a book called Government Project, which the great late uh, Ed Banfield wrote many moons ago. So we're going to talk a little bit about Ed Banfield and, uh, well, maybe a lot about Ed Banfield and maybe some wider areas of institutional dysfunction in America today. So, Kevin, thanks for coming back. Jonah, thanks for having me on. When I came to AI in the early 90s, Ed Banfield, I don't think I ever laid eyes on him. I think he died in 99. But he was just one of those names from the sort of Mount Rushmore of AI lore, um, public interest lore. Um, but I think he's kind of largely forgotten, except among probably political scientists of a certain bent or a certain specialty today. So, like, who was he? You know, if if, if a normal person asked you who was Ed Banfield and why'd you do, uh, and why'd we reissue this lesser known of, I mean, it's not the most famous of his books, which we can talk about in a second, but uh, why this book and why now? Yeah, okay. So who was Ed Banfield? Uh he was a guy born in 1916 uh, up in Connecticut. He was, uh, you know, humble stock. And um, he rose all the way up to be a professor at Harvard and a huge voice in public policy, particularly social policy, you know, dealing with poverty, dealing with housing, uh, dealing with crime, dealing with education those sorts of things. And he was a really controversial one because he spent a lot of his career doing heavy research and looking at the various things being proposed by the um, the left, the academic left in the 1960s and the various people in power, LBJ and the like, and waving his hands and explaining to them that this is probably not going to work out for the better. Uh, and that it actually might, in instances, make things worse, which made him hugely controversial and also got him canceled by students. 
So yeah, Ed wrote a lot of books on uh, on public policy issues, and uh, as you say, sadly, um, he's one of these guys who has slipped off the syllabus, and I fear is disappearing from memory. I, I mean, I, I read big chunks on, of Unheavenly City a very long time ago when I was doing my due diligence of becoming an AI nerd um, in the '90s, and um, I read a bunch of his essays because we put out some of his essay books, but. The only book I've read of his in the in recent past, about ten years ago, was was it the Moral Basis of a Backward Society, which was uh, this great short book, hugely influential, and um, which he wrote with his wife about some really crappy backward town in Italy and why it it was so dysfunctional, and um, and he introduced the term uh, amoral familialism uh, to things, which I've, I've often used to describe American various aspects of tribalism, including, I think the first time I wrote about it was in a piece for National Review about biker gangs. Um, and, um, but, uh, so what, what is government project about? It's, it's one of those things that I, mean, I, I now know because I was prepping for the show, but I, I, it was not one of the ones that was on my list of sort of Banfield or AI classics kind of thing. Well, I should first say that the book uh, is basically a, a reworking of his dissertation at the University of Chicago. Ed was a guy who did a four-year degree in English, and then he went out uh, and started working for the government writing um, PR. You know, he was working for the Timber Salvage Administration, and then he moved over to the Farm Security Administration, and he would write press releases. Uh, and try to convince folks that you know the various things that were being done were were wonderful. Um, he was he was an ardent New Dealer, um, but then in the course of working for the Farm Security Administration, he got a chance to check out this government project, which was a cooperative farm set up by the government out in Arizona. And the idea was you had all these uh, farmers whose farms had financially collapsed. You had all these migrant fruit pickers and farm workers, you know, the grapes of wrath, the oaky sorts, who were in a miserable financial state. Well, why not put them together and have them farm cooperatively? They could all have a share in the farm and they could have an element of self-governance in the farm. And um, that was the government project out there. And Ed took a, a close look at it and was initially excited by it. But in its seventh year, right when it was on the verge of continued financial success, the farm collapsed. And it was a shock to the policy people back in Washington, D.C., because, frankly, the, the, the settlers on the farm, they had never had it better. I mean, they got brand new houses. They got yards. They got steady paychecks. They got a community center built for them. I mean, it was a brand new community built in the middle of nowhere. And these people, on a material basis should have been happy, but they weren't. And they walked away from the farm. And it was a shocking lesson uh, in social policy. And that's what Government Project does. It tells the, the story of that project and, and why it fell apart. And so why did it fall apart? Uh, at bottom, it was the project was inherently confused. Um, there were too many ideas that the policymakers, the smarties at the, the government's resettlement administration had tried to ram together. They like to talk about self-government and that these people would be kind of uh, cooperating and running their own little enterprise. But at the same time, because it was government-sponsored, 
and the taxpayers have put a lot of money into it. The government wanted to keep a lot of control over it and make sure that these people didn't screw it up, which the people figured they would screw it up because they were viewed as simple ogies and other people who had no competence in this and, you know, it'd take five or 10 years before they could be competent in this. Uh, and the people there struggled for power. I mean, it was politics writ small. You have diverse people who want diverse things. Um, you know, which job do you get to do today? Do you get to milk the cows? Do you have to go work out in the field? Well, people had opinions on that. And how do you sort that out? And people fought like heck. And then ultimately they decided they couldn't live with one another and they just croaked the farm. It's a fascinating story to me in part because of the story itself, right? I mean, it, who could have guessed that agricultural collectivization could go bad? <laughs> um, you know, um, like no one's tried that before. <laughs> I mean, this sort of, this jives with unheavenly city, this jives with moral basis of backward society. And, and it's this idea that, um, inputs aren't the only thing, it's, you know, the, the sort of classic government, uh, attitude is, uh, if you build it, they will come, right. That all you need to do is set up the art, the, 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 the infrastructure and everything else will work at, work itself out. And it turns out that there's high levels of cultural capital that need to be applied appropriately. Um, or cultural attitudes, maybe not cultural capital. Um, and if you don't get those incentives right, or if the culture, if the the actual people on the ground aren't interested in what you're trying to, in, in getting into the square pegs that you're trying to put them in, you're going to have unintended consequences. And the reason I, 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 I'm sort of fascinated by all this is, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am... Um, I'm like the last Japanese soldier um, in 49, still on an island fighting a war that's long lost uh, in that I insist on telling people to the point of them moving down away from me on the bus um, that uh, neoconservatism did not begin as a foreign policy thing. That neoconservatism was fundamentally about uh, people, uh, former liberals of good standing, uh, liberals, leftists, mainstream Democrats, that kind of thing of good standing, who began an intellectual migration, quote unquote, rightward when they ran, when they came to the realization that government projects, that government, uh, meliorism, uh, led to unintended consequences. They're, these are the people who looked at the limits of social policy and the limits of social science. And as Irving Crystal would have put it, were mugged by reality. And the first generation of them is generally assumed to be people who responded to the the great society, but Banfield is one of these guys who was sort of neocon ahead of his time because he was responding to the new deal. Um, that's fair. To, do you, do you think he qualifies as one of the sort of, you know, er founding fathers of, of neoconservatism? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, well, well, Crystal and, and the others who are more famously known for being the early neocons. I mean, they were, I don't think they were even in grad school in 1951 yeah. when Banfield's government project came out. And yeah, he was a liberal, got mugged on the way to, uh, on the way to academia um, and by what he saw out there. And you know, like, like the later neocons who would come, um, you know, his conversion was based upon evidence and analysis. This was, this was not just a philosophy. This was him going out and doing interviews with people who worked at the farm, reviewing case notes, studying 
correspondence coming from Washington, D.C., reading history, I mean, archival research. It was a ton of thinking that led him to this position of like, oh my God, this was a bad idea. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the finding that underlies the early domestic you know, neoconservatism before neoconservatism got mapped over into foreign policy, which is it's skepticism. And that leads to one of the reasons I wanted to bring this book back is because, you know, the left has seldom been skeptical about what government can do. They tend to be happy to give it new tasks. In recent years, it feels to me that there are folks on the right who have kind of bought into that same fallacy. Uh, you, know, you have people saying, well, let's get back to industrial policy. Let's get back to, you know, more muscular Washington uh, policymaking and particular things we care about. And uh, that skepticism, I think, is really important. It's one forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a remnant podcast bingo card item um, to point out that when Friedrich Hayek talked about the knowledge problem, he wasn't just talking about left-wingers. He was talking about the, the problems with planning per se, right? And, like, just because you're an ultramontane Catholic or a neo-nationalist or something like that, doesn't make you any better at figuring out what the right price of widgets are um, in a continental economy, in our global economy. And I see it all over the place. The the sort of new right types just simply think, oh no, but industrial policy can work. It's just those guys were bad at it. We'll be really good at it. And um, and that's like the most un- small C, unconservative thing is to think that the laws of unintended consequences don't apply to you because your motives are better. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where government project is really the seed from which Banfield's entire history of scholarship began, which is the recognition that public policy, no matter what policy you're making, involves planning and coordination. And on paper, those things seem pretty straightforward. Uh, but in fact, they're fantastically difficult to pull off. Uh, and they often just don't work because ultimately you're involving human beings who are partial, who are limited in their knowledge, uh, who have their own interests, um, who can be quite cussed, you know, just because you say you should follow this rule or execute a task this way, doesn't mean they're going to do it that way. In the government project thing on this collectivized farm thing, um, the only examples I'm aware of of collectivized agriculture that work over that have worked over time and, and they've run into their own problems, but um, were kibbutzes or kibbutzim in Israel, right? And and I guess I mean there are some hippie communes, but I think you know most of them are gone now. I, I don't know. I'm sure there are some out there, but they they don't seem to last more than one generation. What do you think the difference is, or what would you think Banfield would say the difference is between a what would make for a successful collectivized agriculture versus unsuccessful? Uh, well, you have to have people who understand cooperation and want to do it. And that seems pretty straightforward, but that was lost upon the people who were uh, directing this this enterprise. You know, they took people who pretty much, either had previously owned their own farms and thought the best thing in life is to have your own farm, or they took migrants who never had their own farm, but God, they sure wanted to have their own because that would have been making it in America. And they threw them together on this uh, 
you know, this, this kibbutz type thing and, um, kind of assumed that they would just eventually be educated by the experience into liking living this way and to being cooperative and deferential towards one another. And that was just an errant supposition. Uh, you know, the cultural capital and the kind of cultural perspectives on what they thought was valuable and worth doing just didn't fit. And so that would be a key thing. If you're going to do any sort of cooperative enterprise, I mean, people have to be schooled up on what it means. And it's not as obvious as it seems. It doesn't mean just be nice and help others out. Like, there's really hard questions. I live in a cooperative here in Washington, D.C., not an economic one, but a residential one, one of those high-rise buildings. I mean, these people are almost, all my neighbors are almost all white-collar. Almost all of them are highly educated, have worked in politics or some governance-related thing. You would think they are the absolute perfect people to live in a cooperative. Even so, fighting, misunderstanding, it's, it's replete um, because it's a, it's a very difficult thing to pull off. You know, you can't sit around and have everybody vote on every decision of the organization every day. So you have to kick some of those to a manager. Well, who's going to be the boss of the manager? And where does the management lines of responsibility end? And where do kind of the people who live there's responsibilities begin? And the government project thing was all the more complicated because it wasn't just a residence. It was an economic enterprise. They were earning their money from it. So it's like all the more reason for people to fight with each other. So it's tough. I mean, that's a pretty, it's a pretty good but partial explanation of the iron law of oligarchy, right? Yep. Which was Michelle's argument that even in the most, he was studying um, uh, the a social democratic political party, and he said, "Look, you're just gonna eventually you're gonna have somebody or somebody, some individual or small group of individuals." with uh, informational advantage who are going to have to be making decisions and that's unavoidable in any organization of scale. And that's not necessarily bad. You just, you just need to know that's true and then make and plan accordingly about what processes and stuff uh, you're going to have. But if you let it happen unintendedly, you're going to get a lot of fighting, right? Because like, who are you to say that to make these decisions, right? You need, you need rules about who's going to make the decisions and how you can appeal to decisions. And, and if you don't have an organizational plan for, for how you do that, the organization is going to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly if you're talking about running an enterprise, economic, or I suppose even residential, there are some topics that are inherently technical and require expertise. And this is why you often have to hire a manager because your average person's like, you know, my co-op recently had to do something involving tearing out all the pipes in the boiling system and the cooling system. You know, I got a PhD, but I could not meaningfully participate in that conversation about whether the new system they were proposing, it was going to be the better system. I just had to defer to the management on that. <laughs> and that's, that's just, that's just, a, right. that's just a, a truism. Um, one thing that also came up out at the, um, Casa Grande farm that created huge fights was, um, as James Madison would have told you, by nature, people fall into factions. Birds of a feather cluster together, groups form, and their interests are often antagonistic. Same thing happened there. You know, there were some people mm -hmm. who were very deferential to the government's direction of the farm, and there were others who were like, wait a minute, this is a cooperative. Aren't we supposed to be in charge? You know, they keep telling us that this is our farm. And so they tried to make decisions and often found themselves butting head with their fellow farmers and with the government itself. 
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so for listeners who don't know, I think easily his most controversial banfield's most controversial book was the unheavenly city which came out i want to say 1970 it was a huge bestseller and i I really don't like the phrase cancel culture but to the extent we use that phrase as part of the vernacular he was like one of the first guys to get canceled right i mean he was basically hounded out of the out of his classroom at university of chicago why don't you tell us what was so controversial about that book and how it connects to to government project. Yeah, one of the insights that Banfield had when he visited the farm in Arizona is that different people have kind of different time horizons. There are some people who are kind of very short term in their look. You know, they think about today and they don't think much about tomorrow. And then there are others who think long, long into the future. You know, we all know people who uh, are not saving for retirement. We know others who, like when they were 25 years old, set up an IRA. Uh, We know some people kind of live for the moment. We know others are always kind of playing a really long game. Well, he saw that there. And he also, when he later started looking at, at cities and their problems, crime, kids dropping out, that sort of stuff, he said, people have different time horizons. 
And the folks who have the longer time horizons and who are able to kind of delay gratification, and they can save up their money, and they can stick it out in school, even if they don't want to go to school, and they can put up with a crappy boss and keep earning an income, that those people tend to be more successful than those who are more short-term. Well, pointing that out very quickly got Ed blamed for being, you know, oh, you're blind to structural racism. Oh, you're blaming the victim. Uh, that's, there's people who are unemployed out there. It's not their fault. Uh, and Ed just would kind of scratch his head and <laughs> in bewilderment yeah. say, have you ever talked to any of these folks? Some of these folks really don't feel like holding jobs. It's just not something they enjoy. And if they could find a way to work outside that sort of bourgeois system, they're going to do it. Uh, and if you make welfare policy to support them under the supposition that, gosh, if only there were jobs available, these people would, of course, take them, you're going to be disappointed when they don't. And guess what? Often they didn't. Yeah. One of the things that's sort of looking back on that now, and I, again, I didn't know about Government Project, but I read, you know, the Moral Basis book, because that's a big part of his argument in that, too, is that present mindedness yep. is, you know, just living for today, right, is is really you know, among the biggest drivers of poverty, um, which makes absolute intuitive sense once you think about it for two seconds, right? You know, it's like, if you're not thinking about tomorrow, you're not going to accrue wealth, capital, and not just, you know, material capital, but like mental capital, spiritual capital, or anything. And um, and that's why that town and that village in Italy was such a mess. And what's infuriating about this is like, it's so obviously, at least for Banfield, is not a racist argument because he first made it about Okies in Arizona. <laughs> then he made it about Italians. And then he looked and said, oh, look, the same problems that are afflicting these, these you know, for want of a better word, backward white people um, are affecting these people in, made, in big inner city ghettos. And it's, it's, it's a cultural problem of short, short-termism, you know, and um, the idea that somehow he was singling out urban blacks is really kind of unfair if you just look at the warp and woof of his, of, of his research, you know, he's, 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 turns out it would be kind of racist if he didn't have that conclusion because, you know, his whole point is that this is a problem for people regardless of skin color and there are all these examples of it all across, you know, time and, and space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he would have been the first to point out to you that one of the centuries-old kind of uh, characters in, in novels is the, is the wealthy wastrel. This is the kid who's born into money and uh, never wants to lift a finger, wants to, you know, get blasted on, on liquor every night uh, and go out and play gam gamble and cards and that sort of stuff and drives his father crazy. I mean, one of John Adams' sons. Uh, was in that <laughs> in that sort of camp. Uh, you know, the wastrel is uh, Hunter Biden, sort of in that yeah, camp. Waste yeah. wastrels, you know, they you, they don't know class. Um, the thing is, is the wastrel who's born to a rich person can often get bailed out by daddy and mommy, whereas the person who's who's short term and lives in you know poverty, uh, the consequences are often a, a whole lot worse. So yeah, and Ed Ed also pointed out uh, in the unheavenly city that uh, you know. A lot of the kind of well-minded interventions uh, that have been pushed by some of the smartest people in America uh, on the political left and in, in academia uh, had really disastrous consequences. Um, he wrote a couple early books on housing policy, 
And, you know, right after World War II, we had this urban renewal moment where the government decided that, you know what, people deserve better housing. And a lot of this housing stock out there is inadequate, which to be sure, yeah, there were people who didn't have toilets who lived in Washington, D.C., like in the city. Mm -hmm. But their response to it was to just get out the bulldozers, bulldoze these neighborhoods, and then take these people and, you know, pack them off to another part of town and put them in high-rise projects. And uh, while it looked rational to them, they were solving the housing problem, it created all sorts of other problems. Um, And, you know, within 10, 15 years, we started seeing these housing projects being demolished because they were just so bad. Yeah, I mean, there's a reverse version of that story, though, in the so far as, because I'm a a big believer, you know, the, you know, what do they say in AA that the last thing you want to do is go back to the neighborhoods you used to be, the relationships and the surroundings that you used to be in, because it just reminds you so much of your past bad habits. I remember after Katrina, a whole bunch of families from really poor parts of New Orleans were with help from the government, but they were, they moved to Houston and the outcomes for a lot of them, at least this is a long time ago now, I haven't done any follow-ups on it, but I remember, you know, the, the outcomes were actually really good for some of them because they got out of the kind of neighborhoods that Banfield would say, you know, are stuck in this cultural rut of presentism. Um, and it expanded their time horizons. And, you know, there's a, there's an argument to be made for helping people get out of communities that aren't working for them, whether it's, you know, you know, Banfield said, you know, the rest of Italy was doing fine. It's just like sometimes you get these places that have their own, you know, rut of a milieu that they can't get out of and so and the solution is to get out of it you know it's just to physically leave and i'm not for a population policy of moving people around but like our our colleague you know michael strain has made the point that one of the things we could do is help people move out of areas where there are no jobs give them vouchers for transportation and that kind of thing um, and that's a better way of helping people than trying to like do the if you build it they will come model of 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 economic development. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, some, some urban areas are kind of just the city version of the holler. Mm-hmm. And they are kind of caught in their own little cultural bubble, which is uh, frequently not a, not a healthy one. And certainly dis- being, dispersing people does have the potential to improve their lives. But like anything else, it has to be done right. And with the, the housing projects, right. you, know, you, you might take some families who were on a small city block, you know, they have 20 or 50 neighbors all told, and then you shove them in a building where there are 500 families, uh, and all of whom come from situations that are not particularly um, functional uh, frequently, um, and you're concentrating it. Uh, And little things, I mean, the ability to have a a mailman walk by, uh, a beat cop walk by, um, those things are disrupted when you take people who are living, for, you know, in two-story, uh, two-story homes uh, on a street and then shove them into a huge building. And moreover, the reality of uh, the urban real estate market, which is something Ed pointed out, is that if you want to build these big projects, you're probably going to have to site them on the crappiest land. And so that would mean the edges of the city, which is often farthest away from the jobs. Uh, <laughs> and you're pushing people to the margins, literally, because that's just the economic reality. I mean, think about New York City, some of the projects that were built, you know, they were shoving people way out to the very edge of, of Brooklyn. 
Yeah. There's also, um, my, I remember my brother used to tell me, um, that some of those projects, the contracts to build them were the same contracts that were the same contractors that built some of the prisons and jails. And so the contract, the, the, the construction materials and designs, people noticed <laughs> that they were basically built kind of the same way. And it sort of lent this sort of, you know, it, it lent itself quite easily to various conspiracy theories about like what the purposes of the projects were and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and it was also just really dehumanizing the whole just sort of gestalt of, of those mass projects. Um, you know, which, what was the one in Baltimore, um, that they, no, it was, it was Chicago, Cabrini Green. Yeah. You know, I think that was where we first heard about urban, uh, no go zones or stuff where like the post office refused to even send people to, I don't know if that was an urban myth or not, but it was a, they were clearly disasters in terms of actually trying to help the poor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can understand, for example, that, you know, the people who are charged with, with building these things, the housing authorities and like might reason to themselves, you know, well, we need to do this, uh, and try to watch the, the, the amount of money we spend. Uh, so we should build everything, everybody's home to look exactly alike. And, uh, you know, we want to get durability out of this because we don't have to repair these things. And, you know, some of these folks can be a little bit rough. So, you know, the strongest material out there is concrete. Let's use a lot of concrete in it. So these various small rational decisions from the perspective of the housing authority, you know, can add up to a structure that is just hideous uh, and unpleasant to the person who actually lives there. And so, I mean, that, that's one of the things that Banfield tried to, to emphasize is that, you know, there's no kind of shared rational view of what the perfect solution to a situation is. Everybody's going to be partial. And that's why making public policy and making it well is just so darn hard because your view of what looks successful is not necessarily what the view of somebody else is. How did you get to be such a Banfield groupie? I mean, like, if, if you would ask me, sort of all other things being equal, which scholar was likely to set up an edbanfield.com website? I'm not sure you would be the person I would pick first as the guy who would be doing that. But um, not there's anything wrong with it. I, I highly applaud and, and encourage intense geekery on these kinds of things. But like you just, you, you wouldn't have been the guy. I mean, I would have I pegged Continetti or uh, Yuval or someone like that. Uh, what got you... What what turned you into such a Banfield stand? Two things, and it was happenstance. Um, first thing is, I was uh, in graduate school at NYU long, long ago, and I was working on a dissertation on the um, the politics and policy of K through twelfth grade education, and trying to figure out, you know, whether the federal government kind of got into that business, particularly heavy in the '60s. So I was reading a lot of stuff about education and children and poverty and cultural deprivation and all this sort of stuff, uh, primarily stuff that had been written by folks who you know, were on the left and supported the new, uh, the great society. And I had a, one of my dissertation advisors, a guy named uh, Joseph Vitteritti, who, um, who actually worked in New York City's uh, school system at one point in his life. Uh, he said to me, you know, as he was reading my, my work, he's like, yeah, you know, you you might want to read Ed Banfield's The Unheavenly City um, because it's uh, it's probably going to make you think ab about these things a little bit more. 
So I went and got a used copy of it and I started reading it and I found myself infuriated because he was tearing up my priors. And but he was doing it in a way with data analysis, history, facts. Uh, it was very frustrating. Um, but I couldn't dismiss what he said, and I couldn't refute in many cases. So I'm I'm reading this book, and you know, baffled by this guy I'd never heard of. And at the same time, I started dating this girl. And uh, at one point in time, she was like, well, "What are you reading?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm reading this." Unheavenly City book by this Banfield guy, and it's making making me crazy because it's he's really smart, but I disagree with so much of what he says, but I don't know how to refute him. And she was like, "Yeah, well, that's my grandpa," and I almost just fell over on the subway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she was the eldest granddaughter of uh, of Ed Banfield, and I, I had no idea. Uh, and ultimately, I married the girl, and so I, I I've kind of my mother-in-law is Ed Banfield's daughter, and uh, her brother Elliot is one of Ed's sons. He's the guy who did the art on the walls of AEI, the big beautiful drawings, and he also illustrates yeah. the cover of uh, the Claremont Review of Books. Wait, so Charles Kessler's? Yeah, Charles Kessler was a um, a student of Ed Banfield's, and uh, yeah, Charles Kessler's journal, the big Claremont Review of Books, that always has the illustrations that's elliot banfield that's ed's son who does those beautiful things oh that's great i didn't realize he did all those drawings that's great um i mean kessler actually wrote the um uh charles wrote the uh the obituary for national review when banfield died mm -hmm. um he was a big banfield stand um that's a that's a fantastic geeky meet cute story um i mean it's not technically meet cute because like you'd already met, met the girl but like someone's telling you something when you're reading Banfield and you discover that you're dating her granddaughter. I mean, like you kind of had no choice at that point, but to marry her. That's fantastic. Um, all right. So do you mind since, I mean, you do also host a podcast called understanding Congress and do you mind if we do a little congressional punditry here? Sure. Like I don't have any clue where you come down on actual immigration policy. And I, I mean, I'm curious, but I don't really care. That's not the, that's not the relevant thing. Again, forget the policy of it. Jim Langford goes in, very conservative guy, negotiates this thing, which there are plenty of things that you can point, you can find fault with it if you wanted to, you know, from the left or the right, that's all fine. And now you have people on the right, mostly jackasses, but loud ones, saying he should resign, saying uh, that, uh, that the people who worked on this should be arrested or something. I mean, like crazy, crazy stuff. And so when you look at that, do you despair that there will ever be an opportunity? Like if you were a Senator and Mitch McConnell said, Hey, we got this really thorny issue to work on. Would you mind negotiating with the Democrats on it? Um, and then we'll, we'll take a look at what you come up with. Why in the world would you ever take that assignment, you know, in, for the foreseeable future in the wake of this cluster fudge? Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, well, it's, this is the first serious effort we had on immigration reform, as far as I could tell, since uh, Marco Rubio broke his lance about a decade ago, trying to be the guy to get the grand compromise through. And, uh, you know, when he crashed, everybody kind of in the Senate at the time was like, huh, there's a lesson to be remembered. But, you know, years go by and then you get a good soldier, a earnest 
dutiful, seriously conservative guy like Jim Lankford, who, who's not afraid of going after tough problems. I mean, he's going after regulatory stuff to work on. I mean, he's a serious guy um, who steps back up and then, you know, once again, hits the wall. Yeah, I know it's, uh, it's despairing and it's despairing because, um, A, the problem's not getting solved. I mean, if we do nothing now, then months and months and months are going to keep going by and you're still going to have huge numbers of uh, illegals being turned loose, uh, in this, in this country. And, um, the asylum system's all messed up, and uh, you know it's a it's an issue area that's beyond my my ken. But it's obviously a screwed up situation, and it's painful to see Congress kind of collectively decide like, well, we're just not going to do anything right now because we can't do something that's perfect. Um, and I, I, you know, that's a, can't help but doubling back to Banfield, who would be like, you know, this is nuts. Uh, everybody's going to have to give a little. Everybody's going to have to give a little because you are not going to be able to get a majority in favor of whatever your bill is, whether it's HR2 or whether the left has something that they want. You're not going to be able to get it and ram it through <laughs> both chambers and the presidency and simply impose it. That's just that's not realistic. So the decision to not do something because it's not good enough is actually a decision to just do nothing. Right. And also, I mean, like, when you listen to a lot of the Republican opponents of it, to the extent they're speaking in good faith, because there's a lot of bad faith out there. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have senators, when you have senators say, I'm going to need weeks to read this bill. And then two hours later say, I'm a hundred percent against it. Well, which is it? You know, like you need, need, need weeks to read it if you're going to be for it. But if you can come out against it without reading it at all, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of garbage out there, but the, to the extent there is good faith opposition to it, and I think there is some out there, uh, including among some of my friends, um, the whole framing of this doesn't solve the border problem is the wrong way to look at it, right? I mean, because like permanent solutions to problems are not exactly government's forte. Um, you know, muddling through reforms, improvements, stop gaps, that kind of thing are le less ambitious than, than permanent solutions. And um, there's no way from, a, from the conservative immigration perspective uh, that you can look at this and not see it as an improvement. You can easily say it's not a solution, but that's a standard that they, you know, that you're never going to be able to achieve on a persistent public policy problem like lots of billions of poor people wanting to come to a very rich country where they can work for a living. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, our entire language around, uh, this issue and, and, you know, some of the other topics is, uh, well, this is a problem. And so we have to solve it. And, uh, you know, go back to Banfield. He would have said that this is metaphysical madness. You don't solve problems. You, you, you manage them. And in the course of managing them, if you can ameliorate them a bit, you should pat yourself on the back and feel pretty good because uh, the world is, is what it is and it's very hard to uh, make it a whole lot better. I mean, there's some issue areas, yeah, uh, government can put money and effort into something, you know, build a bridge, you can build a bridge. But that's very different from saying, you know, the flow of human beings across borders of a continental republic uh we're just going to solve that 
and we're going to make sure that the only people who are here are the people who are supposed to be here and that anybody who is here can only stay as long as they're allowed to and then we're going to make sure that they're gone like no, reality is more complicated than that it's just you're, you're setting an impossible bar which um unfortunately this language of uh problems and solving inevitably leads to politicians promising more than they could ever achieve and thereby falling short and fueling voter cynicism because you're telling people you can fix things you can end this you can create this you can do all sorts of stuff but you're never going to do that and then people are going to come away feeling like they were ripped off Right. I mean, there are, I mean, there are things where you can come up with solutions, building a bridge. Like there's cars can't get across this valley. We can build a bridge. That's, mm-hmm. but it's a finite, discrete thing. No one would ever say, well, I'm going to vote against this bill because it doesn't solve poverty. Right. Um, because poverty is, you know, a complicated intergenerational permanent problem of the human condition that we keep, which is one of Banfield's points is that we keep finding poverty all over the place because we keep defining poverty subjectively as a proportion of what rich people have. Um, and, you know, like by that sense, the poorest 10% are always going to be poor in any society ever because they're the bottom 10%. But like, if you define poverty as an, on a, as an absolute criteria, an objective criteria, this many calories, this kind of shelter, that kind of thing, we don't have a lot of poor people in this country. Try to tell it to be anyway. That's neither here nor there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm curious. I, I recently wrote a column about the recent Supreme Court cases tackling Chevron defense, Chevron deference. And it hadn't really occurred to me before that part of the problem with the Chevron stuff is that it is another facet of of of, of disempowering Congress, that it incentivizes Congress to write ambiguous laws, and then the the responsibility for implementing them falls either on the bureaucracy, the administrative state, or on the court. I'm just kind of curious. Where do you come down on that stuff? Because this is sort of your ballywick. If you were going to like impose three, snap your fingers and you got two or three reforms that would get the incentives back to having Congress actually take its job seriously, what would they be? I think one would be to come up with something similar to the uh, so-called RAINS Act so that on regulations that are really massive, that have huge costs or potential benefits that 
Congress should be forced to put them on the agenda and vote on them. The second thing, and this is Phil Wallach, uh, my colleague here at AEI, uh, and I wrote an article for National Affairs a few years ago, is creating a congressional regulation office. Now, to be clear, I am not a big government guy. Uh, I would much rather have a much smaller government. But right now, we've got an executive branch that's just got an army of people who and agencies that can produce regulations. And they've got experts who will make these complicated arguments and calculations about why this regulation is valuable. Congress just doesn't have that equipment. And so it can't even meaningfully participate in those conversations. So having something similar to the Congressional Budget Office, which was created as a counterpart to the executive branch's Office of Management and Budget, uh, we think that would be a good idea because that would mean legislators could say, hey, Department of Transportation says this new rule is going to do wonders for society. Is it? And then you got your own geeks running the numbers and saying, yeah, or no, no, not really. Um, and then Congress can act meaningfully because right now it's unfortunate. You got the, the executive branch just does its regulatory stuff. And then occasionally you have members of Congress kind of sitting on the sideline hooting about it and complaining about it. But so what? <laughs> you know, the machine runs on right. and the administrative state just keeps doing what it's doing. So if you want Congress to act, you got to empower it, but you also have to have people who, who see it as their jobs. Your average member of Congress is already so busy and has incentives to do other stuff that expecting them to sit and read through the Code of Federal Regulations and look at the regulatory pipeline and, and come to decisions is a, is a fantasy. So like th this is another one of these recurring issues on this podcast is what Steve, and I, Steve Hayes and I talk about this a lot about what we got wrong. And one of the things is we didn't fully appreciate the, the desire to get reelected how strong it really was in terms of in bygone eras, it was kind of the incentive structure politically was you run to the base a little bit in a primary, then you run to the center to win, you know, a majority. Right. And so the, the alignment of sort of uh, moderating forces in our politics with uh, the desire to get reelected um, caused a lot of Republicans to be squishier than people like me would have liked, right? You know, it's like, oh, they, they, they're selling out, you know, they, care, they only care about getting reelected and that's why they're moderating. And now because of the, the big sort and the, the gelding of the political parties and a couple other, and the destruction of campaign finance regime, the threat to incumbency is actually in primaries now, not in general elections in all but a handful of districts and states. And, um, and that's what sort of has driven some of the worst behavior on the part of, by my lights, as are conservative Republicans, um, and, and Democrats too, but I just, I've always cared about them less. Do you think that like, you know, I mean, it, it's great to say, and I agree with you entirely that they should have a, you know, a office of regulation. I also think they should bring back that science stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of things that Congress should do to empower itself, but are the incentives there to do any of that so long as the, the, the supply chain upstream um, of our politics is, is oriented the way it is? Uh, I think it's certainly a challenge. Um, anytime you talk about hiring more people on Capitol Hill, um, political right has a flinch response of, no, don't spend more, spend less on the legislative branch because, you know, it sucks and it doesn't deserve more money. And um, 
you know, that's, that's a long term kind of educational effort I and others have been working on to get them to see that, uh, you know, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. And moreover, if you, if you really are worried about the administrative state, then you're going to think more like James Madison. Like, that's a branch. It's power hungry. Well, you're a branch. Think in terms of that and fight back. And the question is, you know, how are you going to fight back? You know, if you want to abolish a bunch of executive agencies so that they can't make regulations, go for it. Um, that's not easy, but you can go for that. But in the meantime, like you need help. You, you can't just yell about something and then not invest in the means to, def- to defeat the problem or contest with contend with the problem that you're, uh, you're, you're complaining about and uh, getting people to see past that, that, that contradiction in their position. It's, uh, it's an effort. It's an effort, but you know, we've gone and six, seven years of talking about Congressional Regulation Office from nobody talking about it to, you know, GAO did a study on it. The House Committee on the Modernization of Congress has, you know, had conversations about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a persuasion operation to get people to think along these lines because it's just all too easy to fall into the old hackneyed, you know, well, we'll just, we'll just cut Congress and that'll make things better, but it won't. All right. Um, Kevin Kosar, thank you so much for doing this. Um, what is the actual URL for your, your Banfield uh, Palooza website? <laughs> EdwardCBanfield.org. Excellent. And the n- book, which was reissued by AI again, is Government Project by Edward C. Banfield. And um, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, so uh, Kevin Kosar has left the uh, studio. And... Um, I enjoy this stuff. I like geeking out on this stuff. And um, I really do recommend going on a deep dive on on Banfield if you're interested in these things. Really interesting dude. And he's also one of these guys who, in part, even though he's a big deal in my world, I think he's largely forgotten in the broader, even educated firmament. Um, but part of the reason why it's is that he was friends with Leo Strauss, Milton Friedman, um, Friedrich Hayek. I mean, he knew all those guys. He was at Chicago with those guys. And he was just, you know, was revered by all of them to one extent, or at least respected by all of them. Um, I was reading on Kevin's website. He has all these great primary source things. And one of them is the remarks from Leo Strauss uh, bidding him farewell from the politics department at Chicago and giving this very sweet toast and uh, anyway, the National Review, I was reading the National Review obituary of Banfield, which I mentioned Charles Kessler wrote, and he really was sort of in the thick of all of these intellectual political arguments for a very long time and was one of the um, most important voices out there. And if you read the Nash book, uh, you know, the conservative intellectual movement um, since 1945, you'll get a much better flavor of of what a big deal Banfield, particularly on Heavenly City, was back in the day. And, you know, one of these days when I write my magnum opus on the neocon stuff, I'll talk more about this stuff. Anyway, um, I'm gonna about to do another podcast, and um, uh, that's all I got, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.